Welcome to Tonebenders, the sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Dustin, Timothy, and Renee. Welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, is Timothy Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, how you doing, Renee? Good. We have Ann Krober with us today. Ann Krober is a longtime sound editor, sound designer, and field recordist. Her credit list includes Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Dead Poets Society, Blue Velvet, Dune, and many others. But she seems to have found her calling as a sound effects recordist specializing in unique animal recordings that can be used in creature vocal design. She's done this for Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, Gladiator, The Hunted, and many more. She has recorded or supplied sounds for 13 films that have either won or been nominated for Academy Awards in sound. Anne also runs a company named Sound Mountain that supplies sounds of all types for films and games all over the world. How are you doing, Anne? I'm, I'm great. Thank you. Nice to, nice to be with you guys. Well, welcome aboard. Well, thank you for joining us. This is great. So, Anne, do you want to start with uh, telling us how you uh, got into the business a bit? Sure. Um, I, this is quite a long time ago. I started my film career at the United Nations, and I was working in the film department there. And I had the, I had an amazing job. I was looking at uh, archival footage. It was quite a cool job, but I couldn't keep it. There were problems with um, too many Americans were on that crew. And so I was about to leave, and my boss said, um, Anne, why don't you consider maybe you could go out with film crews. You could record sounds. And I looked at him like he'd I don't know. He said, you know, maybe you could be an astrophysicist. I mean, that just seemed so, you know, like, what? <laughs> I just, uh, I grew up with this very strict German dad who wouldn't even let me touch his stereo because I'd break it or his hi-fi at the time. He had a really fancy one. And um, I could listen to stuff, but boy, I wasn't allowed to come near it. So I just, oh my goodness gracious. But he kept persisting. I mean, he was like really pushing me. He gave me an assignment. He wanted me to go down to Chinatown and to record Chinese New Year. There was a big festival going on down there. And he had to beautiful, big, huge Nagra and very fancy mics. And he handed it to me and he explained to me in great detail. And I wrote down copious notes of how to use it. And um, I took it home and I studied the notes and I didn't even touch it. I was so afraid to, you know, I didn't even try it at home. I was so afraid of it. I was just mortified, terrified of using this thing. So anyway, I went, I took it down. I uh, brought it down to... you know, put it slung it over my shoulder, and I put the headphones on, and I turned on the recorder, and it was like, oh my goodness, wow. It was just like this world opened up to me. I mean, it was just so cool, like listening through sounds, like isolating them, and really just being all ears and just hearing stuff, and it was like, oh my God, I just was, I I was just amazed. And I started kind of using my instincts and riding the game very, very slowly, which then was a strict no-no. But I did it in ways like recording uh, fireworks, for example, like recording them right at the edge when they are about to explode and then pulling back just slightly. And I did that intuitively. I mean, I just did that instinctively. It just sounded cool to my ears. And I just found things that sounded cool. And I kind of forgot the rules and I totally got rid of my nervousness. I was just really excited. 
And so I brought the recordings back, and they were just blown away by them. They were really like, wow. <laughs> so it was, that's how it started. I mean, it was just that, um, you know, amazing sort of like, you know, so I got jobs in New York. Uh, I worked for um, the BBC, and I was sort of a correspondent, you know, recorded people that came to New York and worked with the UN crews and so on, and low-budget features and blah, 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 and worked for a number of years in New York. And then a friend of mine invited me out to San Francisco, and I fell in love with San Francisco. I just was like, oh, my goodness. And my friends in New York were so like, oh, you can't move to San Francisco. I mean, you know, you've got a career here. I did anyway. <laughs> I just, <laughs> and um, I, you know, was looking around for jobs. And actually, I started off as a, went back to picture editing. I was working in for um, a news station, the CBS news station here as a picture editor, a news editor. And uh, one day I got laid off on that job and I went out looking around. There was a feature film that was up. It was called The Black Stallion. I went actually for a, a picture assistant job there. And um, the guy noticed I had all this sound experience. And so he said, you know, the, the, the sound supervisor really needs an assistant. And why don't you talk to him? So I went over to talk to him, and he wasn't there. I waited for a couple of hours, I mean, waiting for him. He, he, he just didn't, he was shy and didn't want to talk to anybody. So he was sort of dodging and hoping I'd go. He didn't know who I was, but he just thought, you know. Anyway, he came back, and we started talking. This was Alan Splett. And um, we started talking, and oh my goodness gracious, I mean, it was just incredible. I and mean, we started telling stories. I had done all these kind of weird recordings, just sort of strange ways of recording things, and he had done very similar things, and we were just comparing notes and laughing, and, you know, it just... So it, he hired me. It just started off this incredible relationship. Of, uh, it was just, especially on The Black Stallion, before he became famous, it was just amazing. I mean, we were just... It was just incredible. I mean, he had me actually, um, he taught me how to equalize and how to, um, I listened to, to, to material because he wanted to focus on, on, on editing when, when we were busy editing. Um, and I got to, you know, sort of select select. Uh, sound effects for the rest, the other editors, you know, and select material and prepare it for them. And of course, I went out and recorded a lot. Alan was very critical about my recording, and we went out doing something one day, and I had a mic somewhere that was uh, not really appropriate, <laughs> but it sounded really cool there. And he looked up, and he got really like, "What? What that? What's that microphone doing there?" And I sort of looked up, and I went, "Oh." well, maybe you should record and I'll create the sound effect. You know, I'm sorry, I just sort of, I sort of where, I don't know. And so he put it where it would be normal, where it, where it would be logical. And then slowly, slowly, as each take happened, the microphone ended up right back where I had it before. And he, uh, I kind of this this was a, a bone of contention with our relationship for a while because it was it was inappropriate for me to point it out, but I sort of laughed and I point I, I pointed I said look there it is, <laughs> um, and so he, anyway he let me record <laughs> he, I got to go out and record after that it was sort of like well, yeah 
she knows what she's doing. So we just, you know, did, did things in really unconventional ways. And uh, I, it was just great. I mean, I remember Black Stallion just, you know, this is so many years ago, but I was just going out and taking a uh, a coconut shell on the end of a, a sledgehammer and, and hitting dried cow patties pies in a field, <laughs> you know, to, to get the sound of a horse hoof going down on hard packed sand, which doesn't sound like much of anything in actual fact, but the dried cow pies on top of the sand just sounded fantastic. And I had a whole bunch of cows watching me just wondering, what in the world is she doing? Black Stallion was just, it was one of those seminal sound films. It was one of the first ones that really pushed into the into the general consciousness what sound could do in film. Um, it's so cool that, that you guys met on that set and that you were able to uh, to really push that out the way that it went. Oh, I know. It was really, it was incredible. It was an amazing film to work on. It was exciting. How did your background in picture editing start to influence what you were doing with regards to recording and, and, and spotting sounds? You know, I'm not sure, did I? I got to know directors, you know, because we were close. We talked about sound. I was very fortunate to work with directors, Alan and I, were, you know, that were really sensitive to sound. I got to know them, and I would sort of be like... I mean, Carol did this thing, Carol Ballard on The Black Stallion, it started off where he had the whole crew come in and he wanted to, he was trying to figure out a, a beginning for the movie. I didn't even know if I was allowed to talk because I was, you know, an assistant. I, you know, the New York kind of protocol was, yeah. and he didn't care if the guy, you know, sweeping, could come in and sweep floors if he had a good suggestion. He would, he would use it over the, you know, whoever. I mean, you know, he was just delighted. So, I came up with an idea, and Carol liked it, and then, you know, it sort of, dis, you know, kind of went by the by, and then it was really weird right at the very end when we were all just getting ready for the mix. He showed us the beginning of the film, and it was exactly what, what I'd suggested. It was like, oh, nice. my goodness. But anyway, what I did, what I did, I guess what happened for a number of films is, is I kind of kibitzed. I mean, I would sort of... Just, I did that. I got involved with sort of the picture editing. Just, you know, like, I was cool on films, and, and they. I don't think this happened in L.A. so much, but up north it was like everybody kind of got to put in their two cents, and I, I did that quite a bit. I did it uh, with Peter Weir for really extensively, with David on on David on The Elephant Man. Oh, my goodness gracious. I The the British crew wanted to turn that movie into a kind of a BBC clip-clop drama, and they, I, I, it was just so unlike David. And I kind of, you know, just worked as, you know, was sort of a back person that encouraged him and just appreciated I appreciated his incredible vision I mean incredible artist and just to have his davidness and to to not to let that go so you know that kind of thing and I think I do that with my sound I mean my business now the kind of way that I have it's very unusual I I, I like working with people and just being a kind of you know kind of uh, I don't know, an advisor? I don't know if that's the right word, a, a consultant, or just to come up with ideas for them, to play off things, to hear what they're doing, and to help them to be more what they are, <laughs> you know, to help them be more, you know, I, I did that with sounds. I've A number of people that I've worked with, I look at their picture and stuff and come up with ideas of, you know, gosh, you could use a little bit of this, and, you know, that would sound really good, but 
maybe if you add a little turmeric here, you know, I mean, I, for example, um, with Peter Albrechtson, who I've just dearly loved working with, I've been working on a number of projects with him over the years and got to meet him and we've, it's just been wonderful. Yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, he really is. And now he's working, we just, it was just sort of helping out on a 3D Atmos picture that he's doing and, and, um, in Denmark, which is really something. There's so few Atmos pictures. I God, I'd love to be over there and really work on it. But anyway, you know, I, I've just supplied sounds and went out and did some recording for him and so on. But when when I the way that I first we first uh, hooked up, he he'd. Um, um, Put in. It was a just a. He was looking for some sounds of um, cracking ice for a, a Danish. It was a Danish sort of promo picture about you know beautiful ice in Denmark. He had some actual cracking sounds which were really amazing, but they sound kind of the the director thought they sounded too kind of science fiction. It almost sounds like it's got a real almost kind of like a almost like a science fictiony kind of thing. Yeah, you'd never believe it comes from ice. Exactly, and the guy thought it just didn't really hook up. So um, what I suggested, I wrote. He was looking for some sound, so I wrote back and I suggested that he use um, possibly. To, 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 I, I had real, you know, like ice, like the slushy ice just breaking a normal sound with where you could hear the water underneath the ice. So, you you know, it would kind of ground it. And then I had this whirling tones. It was a spirit catcher that I had recorded. It was, a, it was just a beautiful kind of gadget that whirled around and, and made this just beautiful kind of humming Combined with the the sciency thing, gave it a kind of magical quality, and the actual ice, you know, and slushy water gave it grounded it, and it you know really worked. It just they were so pleased. It was all so that that's how it started. I mean, Peter and I were like, whoa, this is great, and Peter's just you know he's just full of ideas and stuff, and we're just you know it's a real nice kind of collaboration. So. Peter Albertson, obviously the the guy that did the sound for the original Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the Danish version. Exactly, yeah. There's been a couple of other people that I've just had amazing experiences with. Balon Fonseca, I think his last name is, who's a you know a Bollywood guy that I helped with um, the ending of a Running of the Bulls sounds, where that was really exciting. I was just trying to get the kind of the ending of the film and it was really problematic. They'd actually recorded it, but it was too noisy with too many people and it just didn't have enough. They wanted to have individual bull sounds running and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just, you know, came up with this whole kind of thing from caribou that I had up and from recorded up in Alaska and a combination of that and horse hooves on pavement. And, and it worked. It was it's just fun. I, I enjoy doing that. I like working with people. I like finding out what they need, what the colors of their project and seeing if there's some, you know, other paints that I could throw into the pot. 
That's, you know, how my little business works. I don't know if it's the best business model in the world, but it's sure it's the most pleasant for me to, to do. And I think I can be the most helpful. So your business model is very collaborative. You don't just put sound libraries up for people just to pick and choose. You get together with artists of all bents and collaborate with them and talk about their projects. And then you put a package together. Exactly really customized for, for what they need. And, and I'll mention, you know, some kind of outlandish things. And I'll put extra things in that, you know, may or may not could be really great or wouldn't work at all. It doesn't matter, you know, I just to come up with, you know, more possibilities. If I'm working on a project and I can't quite get the sound right, would I send you an actual clip from the piece that I'm working on? It's always helpful. That's wonderful to, to, get an, to get actual clips or pictures or, you know, the more information I have, the more I can hone in. Can you tell us a little bit about the library that you'd be pulling from? Sure. Um, the library is a huge, massive. I mean, Alan and I recorded a lot on projects that we worked on. I mean, we recorded a lot, and we recorded really sometimes very unusual sounds, very different stuff that people don't have even today. And for a while, you know, there was a poo-poo because it was analog, and now people really appreciate it being analog. Right. <laughs> There's things that analog can, can capture that really digital just on, you know, on the threshold of possibly being able to do, but very loud sounds. Analog does so much better than digital often. Uh, I just have a real huge kind of collection that desperately needs somebody to help me organize. And I'm just a little neurotic about my library of actually making, I hate sort of putting things in categories and limiting things. I like to be able to keep it because one, a sound can be used for one thing, but it can be used for something completely different that you would never think. And yet it's just perfect for that. So I, I, I'm not the right person to, to, to catalog, but it really does need to be kept for posterity and for other people to be able to access because, um, it, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. Do you still keep your analog stuff on reels or is it all digitized? I still have the original reels. It's not all digitized. About two-thirds of it's digitized. There's still a lot that needs to be digitized again. There was a project I was hoping, and unfortunately I don't think it's going to happen, it was a big European-U.S. grant that we were going for to get it digitized at 192 just to do the whole library at the highest bit rate and, and you know really make it you know, just capture it really great. And I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm hoping, I, you know, I can find somebody else that would help sponsor, you know, to get it done. Um, I want to have it done at Fantasy here. They've got a really great studio. They've got a great system. And they had a lot of experience in um, digitizing old records, you know, old analog recordings, music recordings. And so anyway, that would be great. But when Alan was working on Eraserhead with David Lynch way back when, he was at the American Film Institute. He had a day job as the head sound guy at the AFI. The studios uh, back when, you know, didn't have these big libraries. I mean, everything was analog and it wasn't the same. So they contributed just a huge amount of sound effects on, on all the early movies to the American Film Institute. And Alan transferred it from MAG to quarter-inch tape. And he made a deal with George Stevens that he got to keep a copy and the AFI got to keep a copy. He, you know, cataloged it all and 
It's divided up into, you know, like there's 10 reels of traffic, for example, but it's early traffic that you can't reproduce anymore or old vintage planes or just every imaginable sound from early film. It's pretty just a remarkable library. And Ben Burt came over and spent a week calling through it. And just, you know, he'd listen to things. He'd go, oh, that's a 1932 blah, blah movie. Oh, my God, that came from... I mean, he would be able to recognize that stuff. It was just incredible. I mean, it was just... And he found a, a sound in there that it was he was looking for for 30 years that's really special. He'd been variation on a famous sound that's out and about. I want to release that sound at some point and let people just sell it for a dollar or something. I don't know. Just give it to get, let people have it, but uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> That's cool. So anyway, there, yeah, there's just a lot of really cool. How much like recording is it? Is it just a massive amount? Oh my God. I mean, well, I'd like, I, okay. There's pr- approximately 300 reels. I'm not a hundred percent. There's 210 that I know are from the AFI. There's a, there's a, bought 90 more that I'm not sure if they come from the AFI or from somebody else's private collection. So I, I, I can't, I, I haven't done anything with that material. But I did digitize the AFI collection. So it's basically, well, what is it? Th- 30 times 200, 30 minutes times 200 is what? That'd be 6,000 minutes going into hours, uh, 100 hours, 100 hours. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, it's pretty, yeah, there you go. That's pretty, that's, that's quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like a Library of Congress type job. Some of it's kind of too old. It's not appropriate, you know, it's not, it's beyond it's, <laughs> but there's some that's just amazingly good, good sounding. I just supplied some of those sounds for a game just recently. Um, you know, that they were just delighted. I mean, it was just something that they couldn't find anywhere. And I was in my library and it was like, whoa, this is just yay. And it really sounds pretty darn good. So yeah, it's cool. Um, so anyway, that's part of the library. And then I have my animal recordings. I've been able to find a way to, to talk to animals. I just It just happened just over the years that I've had this just amazing, gosh, I don't know. I just I, It's something that I discovered, and it, it's really exciting. With People used to make fun of me, you know, that I was anthropomorphizing animals, mm-hmm. that animals don't really communicate with, with different species the way you think they do. And then now you see these pictures on YouTube and, and, and you know, of an animal, you know, like a, a goat and a bunny or, you know, a tiger and a, a lamb, you know, hugging each other, and you go, "Oh my God!" You know, that's just nonsense. Of course they do. But what what I what I have discovered, and one of the things that I just is amazing, is that animals, I think, are way more intelligent and way more understanding than people give them credit for. People are getting a little bit away from that, but not as you know, you do it with your dog or your cat, but not realizing that. Lions and tigers and monkeys and all kinds of animals, they understand us as well. I mean, what I found with creatures when I went off to record them, that they were so happy for me to take them seriously. They were so delighted for me to, to respect them and to just let them in on what I was doing. This is just might sound weird, but I mean, I would just explain to them about the recording. You know, they, they get all nervous about this big microphone, you know, that's furry. And then I would just, by being, by, by talking to them, looking at them, 
being very present and just in a you know a kind voice, just as I would uh, a young child, a smart young child, I would explain to them what I what it was, and oh, oh you don't have to be afraid of this. It's okay. And then I just and I would point and I'd say the sound it goes in there and it comes out there, and you know and I used to when I had my nagra sometimes I'd play back some sounds for them and they would be just fascinated by that. And then they'd talk to me. I mean, I just over and over again, I'd have this just amazing experiences. And every time it would happen, I'd just would go, I mean, I'd, I'd be flabbergasted. I'd be just in, in sort of in another state for days, just sort of thinking about it. I mean, I mean, one time I, I had this experience with a, bun- a group of uh, monkeys. Almost inevitably, the people that were in charge, like at the zoo, would want me to stay away or, you know, not get close. I got to go into this area where uh, people didn't usually get to go inside where the monkeys were. Uh, it was like a whole complex where they were, the, a whole uh, little group of monkeys were. And uh, she told me, okay, there's two rules. You can't look at them and you can't talk to them. And I said, I can't record. I, that's how I work. I'll sign something. And I, at the time, I didn't know that monkeys actually can be dangerous. I'm t- very tall, and I just didn't think it was going to be a problem. One little monkey was up on this very, very high rock, kind of looking down, look, watching us. And I couldn't find see any other monkeys when I was sort of making my arrangements with this woman. And I just beckoned to this monkey, and I said, come here, come here, I want to show you something. Come here. And the monkey walked down the the rock, and the whole group just followed it. And I showed them my recorder. They all sat around me like little kids, you know, in kindergarten with crossed legs. I mean, it was just amazing. They're all like listening very, very intently. And I explained to them. I gave them this little lecture. I wish somebody could have, you know, done a video of it. It was just really remarkable. I just by explaining to them, what the microphone was and the recorder. And then I played these little sounds of dusty tiki monkeys that, you know, and they were listening like so intently. I said, you guys can do better. And they all jumped up and they started hooting and hollering and jumping and running around. And I mean, they were just like, oh, wow. And they were so conscious of that microphone. I mean, it was just really fascinating. And one would jump on my shoulder and they were like, ah. And I mean, I've had this over and over again. I fell in love with a, a, a tiger uh, just fairly recent, no, maybe a year, two years, I don't know, just not, not too long ago of recording. I went down to a complex in, in um, the Mojave Desert um, and it was a cat haven called. And I got, there was a tiger, this gorgeous Bengal tiger who, uh, just, oh, he's so incredible. And he was just lonely. And I, we made friends. I bonded with my, did my stick and explained to him, you know, he was wary at the beginning. And he'd come over and he'd talk to me in the mic. And I'll play you a little sample of that. <coughs> it was sort of like, oh, you don't know the trouble I've been. It was just incredible. And one day, I, I used to go over and just go back and talk to him. You know, I just love to see him. I love that tiger. And one day, he put his head against the side of the fence where I, w- where I was standing, and he wanted me to pet him. 
And I knew he did. I mean, he just, you know, he put it one. And I, I so badly did. And I was so told not to. And I, you know, had read stories, you know, I just didn't know if he could freak or something and bite me. I just, I didn't know. I'm, I just thought, you know, I wasn't going to be presumptuous. But he pulled back and he looked at me and he just was like, he just stared at me. He was like, you don't trust me, do you? And I tried to explain to him that I wasn't allowed to, and I was sorry. And he just, ah. and he just, I, that was it. I couldn't, for a couple of days, he just like, I wasn't allowed to talk to him. It was like, nope. And then one <coughs> night, I was told that the the different big cats will talk to each other. They'll call out to each other at night, and they won't do it around humans. And usually, I always, I hardly ever set up microphones. I always, record, I like to have the mic and have the hear and be able to place a microphone. To me, it's very important where it is. Just the, the little nuance can make a lot of difference. But I wasn't able to do that. I needed to place the microphone. So I decided to place it outside of Caesar's complex. And he had this huge, massive area that he was in. And the chances of him coming over to that microphone were, were probably not real good, especially because he was mad at me. And he was looking at watching me do it from a long ways off, you know, and just like, yeah, all right, whatever. And... Um, but I tried, you know, I thought, well, okay, I'll just, you know, do that. So I set my mics up uh, in a table right outside of, you know, a spot where I used to go and talk to him and he'd, you know, record him. And uh, there was a bunch of uh, leopards that were right on the other side. And I thought, well, you know, I could get, if they were going to make any sounds, I might, you know, could get the background from them. So... I went away and, and sat with a, another person. We were a long ways off, and I could hear the leopard start up with this chant. All of a sudden, I heard this single voice come up and sort of do a solo. It was like an old jazz singer. I mean, it was like a, you know, a call and response. And Caesar had walked right up to the microphone and sung right into it. To this day, I want to go and put my arms around him and hug him. I just, I so do that. I mean, I, I was almost like, if he eats me, that's okay. That's the way I'll go. I just was so, <laughs> I was so touched by him. Wish I had, I, I'm, I'm sure, I'm 99.8% sure that he would never have bitten me. I mean, I just, it would have been delightful to have petted him, but I, I didn't know. So how do you approach safety with the big dangerous animals? I'm careful. I'm not silly. I don't, I haven't been out in the wild with big dangerous animals. I usually in a, a fenced in area or something and I'm on one side and they're on the other. So they come over to me. I had an experience actually uh, recording cheetahs on a cheetah ranch and the guy um, was really nervous about having us come anywhere near these cheetahs because uh, some French photographers had gotten hurt by them. They, you know, the cheetah had taken a swipe at them, and it, you know it was pretty bad. So the guy was he wanted me in the next county. I mean, he was just you know, girl, you get away, you know, get back. And what I did is I I just looked at the cheetah in the eye, and the cheetah was real wary. 
And I just by kind of very gently just saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. You know, just whispering, sort of, it's okay. It, and, and just being with, with soft eyes and, and just communicating, just by back and forth, just, you know, like you do with a, another animal. I mean, you can do it with any animals, and it's just amazing. I mean, they calmed down, and I kept getting closer and closer and closer till I was able to really record them. And then at one point, um, I went over to, um, to one of the compounds, and I called a cheetah over, and he came over, and I said, here, I want to show you something. I've got something really cool. And the cheetah came over and sat right on the other side of my microphone. I held the mic up, and it raised its head and started purring. And that was exactly what I needed for the movie. There's a scene in the movie, I think I have it in my uh, showreel, where the cheetah just raises its head and it purrs like right into the mic. And that's that, I mean, it's just, you know, the cheetah's sitting on the kid's bed and it raises its head and purrs. And that's exactly what the cheetah did. I mean, oh my God, that was so cool. And by the end of the day, I actually got to pet one of those cheetahs. It's cool. It's all good. And the cheetah let us pet him. I just was amazing it's just so cool I and mean, they were just they were lovely and the cheetah just the cheetahs just talked and did all these kinds of you know amazing sounds that i needed for the film and it was perfect i got to you know cut in, cut in all this great Originally, I was hired to do the cheetah vocals, and then I, they asked me to be the sound designer. So, um, yeah, it was it was it was cool. And these types of experiences with animals, they're not usually at zoos. They're kind of at, at different places. Depends. You know, in the old days, I used to go to the San Francisco Zoo. I mean, that was my main place. I've recorded the San Diego Zoo. I've recorded it at a zoo down in Belize one time, and they had a fire. And I had to leave. It was sort of approaching. And I was riding back, and there was a fire on the side of the road. I had the driver stop because I needed fire for the movie I was working on. It was Mosquito Coast. So I started recording this fire. You know, I was right there. It was like this whole field was on fire. I was like, yay, this is great. And then all of a sudden, I realized that the wind could change. <laughs> you know, we, I just... <laughs> So we got we got back in the car and left. I told Alan, and Alan said, "Well, did you record it?" And I said, "Yes, but are, weren't you worried about me?" And he said, "No, you're here. It's okay. Did you get it?" I said, "Yeah, yeah." That's funny. <laughs> so, Anne, just for uh, some of our listeners who might be a bit younger, we've mentioned Alan many times. Uh, do you want to just give us a bit of a background on Alan so they know who we're talking about? Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, Alan, he passed away um, about, oh, uh, gosh, 19 years ago now. So, But anyway, Alan um, worked with David Lynch. Well, he did Eraserhead back when, and that, that movie was just iconic. I mean, they were, it was a school film, and the AFI was so disgusted with it that they, they actually um, they gave David the rights, which was incredible, and David shared the, the royalties with everybody that was involved in it, and that's the only film. I'm still getting royalties for Eraserhead. It's incredible. Anyway, um, it, it just, it was an, if, if anybody hear it, I mean, the sounds are just 
a whole different world. Then from that, Carol Ballard was really blown away by that, and he asked Alan to work on The Black Stallion. And Alan got a, a special achievement award, Academy Award for that. I mean, it was just, you know, it just changed sort of, the, you know, sound, the way sound was heard. And he was really one of the people, there was three people, Walter Murch, Ben Bird, and Alan, that really changed sound for movies. And Alan had his own style as the other two guys did, but it just was a whole different way of listening where you enhance the the mood of a film with atmospheres and with textures and colors of sound that give you a, a heightened feeling of the film, of, 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 your, of the place that you're in. And, you know, sometimes it could be sounds that you would never actually hear there, but you take it for granted when you're watching the film and you get pulled into this world. It really was remarkable. And he's, he was an incredible artist. I mean, he's also very intuitive. And it was amazing working with him. We were like two kids in a sandbox sometimes, you know. But anyway, um, he was meticulous in terms of all the different layers of sound that he would do. And this was all in the analog days, you know, and with film. So it was, you know, a lot more tedious than it would be now. With many, many, many layers and many, many different sounds to make up one scene or one idea he he was venerated by by many filmmakers and alan actually got i'm going to say this just because i want him to be remembered i mean he he actually got jobs rather than walter i mean he was asked to do the english patient he was actually asked uh, steven spielberg they had asked him to do et and raiders of the lost ark and alan turned steven down because he'd already agreed to work on a david lynch project and he he wasn't really into big blockbuster kind of it wasn't his thing. He liked art more than, you know, at, at the time. I mean, not that Steven Spielberg isn't artful, but one time I was down in a commissary working on the Dead Poets Society and having lunch with uh, Peter Weir. And Steven Spielberg came over to talk to Peter Weir. And Peter uh, introduced Alan and I, and Steven Spielberg's jaw dropped. And he looked at Alan and he said, you're Alan Splett? I've been wanting to meet you for years. <laughs> That's cool. And oh, and, and here's a, just one more Alan story. Alan got this incredible notoriety. When he got the Oscar for um, The Black Stallion, we knew ahead of time because it was a special achievement award. And we were in England working on The Elephant Man. And Alan decided that he wouldn't go and ex- take the, you know, go to Hollywood to get the Oscar. And he figured that nobody cared anyway. I mean, it was, you know, a sound award. And the studio really did care, and they kept putting more and more pressure on until, you know, if it was Francis Coppola that called, and then it was, you know, somebody, then, and, and it was all the way up the food ladder until the head of, I think it was United Artists called, you know, to get Alan. They were going to send us on a Concord, you know, and there was just all these offers to go. And the more that they pressured him, the more he became resistant and decided he would not do it. He was not going to go because it was important to him to not um, 
abandoned the project that he was working on. He'd gotten the Oscar. I mean, he'd already gotten, finished that film. He'd gotten the award. He was happy, you know, he was very honored to get it, but he just didn't feel that it was, that was just, you know, extra hoo for him to be there. So the night of the Academy Awards, if Alan had gone, you know, he would have just gotten that, gone, you know, said a little bit and left, you know. But what happened is, is that Johnny Carson was the, the host that night. Before the presentation of the next award, which is in the category of sound, I'd like to tell you that the Board of Governors has voted a special achievement award for sound effects editing of the Black Stallion to Mr. Alan Splett. And he made a running gag about Alan the whole night long, where he would come out and he'd say, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Splett, who's going to be uh, getting the Special Achievement Award for Sound, is a little bit late. He'd made a wrong turn on the Ventura Freeway. He just called and he's coming pretty soon. Ladies and gentlemen, we just heard from Alan Splett. He missed the off-ramp at the Civic Center. And he's somewhere in Ensenada, but he's on his, his way here. Our next presenter is a and child then he'd, there'd be another update. Alan Spread just stopped off to pick up, you know, this actor that was sick. He's coming pretty soon. It is not Melvin Douglas's fault. He's not here tonight. He was in a carpool with Alan Splett. And then, and then he say, Alan Splett. Oh, Alan Splett had a problem with the, the a flat tire. They're fixing it right now, but he's going to be here. You know, so there'd be these Alan Splett. You know, he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Until the very end, after the whole show was over, Johnny Carson comes back and he says, "Ladies and gentlemen, first it was George C. Scott, and then Marlon Brando, and now Alan Splett." has stood us up at the Oscars. It always happens. First George C. Scott doesn't show, then Marlon Brando, and now Alan Splett. <laughs> and oh my God, I mean, the amount of publicity he got for that was just unbelievable. I mean, Alan had this amazing ability. He'd run away from, from publicity and it would chase after him with more speed and veracity than it was just, I don't know, I've never seen anybody like that. And he did it from such a kind of moral and decent spot. People weren't used to that. You know, everybody wants to get noticed. <laughs> I have the opposite. <laughs> but anyway. The Sound Mountain Library contains Alan's personal recordings as well? Oh gosh, yes. Oh yes, of course. It's his organized library, really. I mean, it's his. That's part of the reason that's such a problem for me to redo it into decent category. You know, there's so many ways to do it in Sound Minor and, you know, nowadays, but I've kept it kind of in Alan's old. You know, there's there's handwritten catalogs, and I have everything, so I know where I can find things according to the catalogs, and so on. And I I have you know a way of being able to to locate stuff, but you know, it's it's not really useful for other people. <laughs> I mean, in you know this day and age, there's got to be some way to you know, have both. But yeah, no, he detailed handwritten catalogs of, you know, all the sounds in the library. Some of the stuff that's in there is contact mic recordings. Alan, I guess, developed a, a specific type of contact mic. No, he didn't. That's actually mine. I, I Oh, that's yours. Alan just is an amazing person. And we had an incredible, incredible relationship. But one of the things that was a guy deal, and especially because we were from a different generation, I was kind of invisible in a way. I was sort of behind the scenes. And 
Alan was really threatened when I would get noticed. It was sad. I mean, it was just, it was difficult for me, especially as, you know, time went on. Because I loved him and I loved his work. And I said, I just throw all my energy into his project. And he, you know, it was all Alan. But it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't all him. But I'm going to give you one example that was really and truly mine was the contact microphone. It was something that I just discovered um, when we were in England, there was a, some little BBC picture that um, some little short thing where they had a guitarist and a drummer and they put a contact microphone, they called it a frap, I think, that was on the contact microphone, I mean on the guitar. You could only hear the guitar and you could hear like all the vibrations of the guitar, but you couldn't hear the drums. And I thought, oh my God. God, that would be so cool to use for sound effects. Oh my goodness, to be able to to isolate sounds and not be able to hear other stuff around it. Like, wow, would that be cool? And I talked to Alan about it, and I we got back to San Francisco, and I talked to some other sound guys, and I found out that the guy who'd invented it actually lived in, in San Francisco. His name's Arnie Lazarus. We were working on Dune, and we had to create this whole, you know, kind of other world of sounds. So I asked Alan, and I was going to go out and record three days a week was the, the deal. I asked Alan if I could, you know, maybe pursue and try to use a contact microphone. He said, you know, absolutely, you know, let's let's try it. Let's see what that's like. So I went down to Arnie Lazarus and I worked with him. It was three months because I wanted to find a mic. He custom made a microphone for me that was sensitive enough that I could put it near a steel mill and it wouldn't, you know, break up. I mean, but it um, was... You know, I could I could use it and had a lot of you know nuance and stuff, and I'd listen and we'd go back and forth until finally it seemed like you know it was pretty good. So I got it back to um, to Fantasy where we were working, the Fantasy Studios. You know, I just started experimenting with it, and he said, "Well, you know, just go out and try it." So uh, the first thing that I did was I, I put it on a, a ventilator. It was like an overhead vent just to see you know what it would sound like. You know, the ventilators just, you know, to your naked ear, it's, you know, it's air conditioning sounds, just a kind of, you know, just a whooshy um, kind of air vent sound. You know, it's not very interesting. I put the microphone on the ventilator, and it was like, oh, my God. This whole world opened up. It was like all these sounds inside the ventilator, all this this music, I mean, this just, you know, there was all this stuff that was going on in there that you just don't hear. And I was like, oh, my heavens. And I just realized, like, wow, there's, like, all these worlds we could capture. And I learned how to use that mic. I took it out. I learned putting it on metal has a certain kind of effect. Uh, putting it on plexiglass, I found, was the thing that made it that was the most neutral. And Alan just gave me free reign. He said, you know, just go out and capture stuff. And that's what I did for, you know, ages. I just And, and I would record with one mic was with the, the chefs. 
and then the you know a regular microphone and then the other was with uh I used a stereo recorder and and then the other was with the other track was with the frap and then just you know to see kinds of things that worlds that I could create and I mean we that's what we used I mean extensively on dune and Alan got you know into it too and recorded stuff with it and you know was very you know wonderful but that really was my Thing. That was my baby. I mean, that was my um, kind of just, you know, I fell into it. I mean, it was just, you know, just this kind of lucky, amazing kind of thing that just happened. That I think that's one of the things that I want to leave people with, with sound, is to be open for, for ideas. And I think the most important thing is just to be present. I mean, there's so many possibilities and there's so much musicality and beauty of sound around you. And it's not to narrow yourself and get too sort of worked up about one kind of, you know, you want to get such and such a thing and you have to do this or, you know, whatever. And you become, it's, there's less likelihood that you're going to be open to the beauty and the amazing things that are around you if you sort of get out of the way and just listen and just hear and just find out. It's just like, whoa. And there's just such incredible sounds around us. But, you know, it's just to just be open to it. Do you find that it's important to combine a traditional mic with a contact mic? I've had that thought, but I haven't pulled it off a whole lot. I like it because I like the possibilities because sometimes something that I record, it really doesn't sound good with the contact. I mean, the contact is very, very catch-as-catch-can. I mean, what I've found with the contact more than anything I've ever recorded with is the stuff that I, if I over plan something and I think it's going to be a certain way, it inevitably is going to (laughs) suck. It's going to just not work at all. It's just like, no. But if I'm kind of open and go, wow, maybe I could try blah, blah, and just sort of play around and let's see if I could put it here. All of a sudden, it's like, wow, yeah, wow. And then something will come that's even way better than I ever thought. That's what happens. I do a combination of the, the, the natural. I like having the grounding of what's the reality with the contact to be able to use both channels often is is more interesting than either one alone that's been my experience i did a thing called for for the hollywood edge called um, sounds of a different realm common sounds heard in uncommon ways is one of the the cds and all of it i i did actual with wonderful colleague john meyer who was an intern with me we went out and just recorded i wanted to do this because i was asked to do as you know a three cd set for my library and i knew that if i did my contact recordings that they were going to all be alan i mean it was going to be labeled alan's that that would just naturally happen so i decided to do new recordings just to take a chance and do a new set of common sounds heard in uncommon ways we recorded just cool things around the you know computers and refrigerators and toasters and you know just all kinds of just normal everyday sounds that you hear and then just heard the musicality and the magic that's inside of them that's can be captured and one channel was with the the air mic and one channels with the the contact and I left them separate so instead of mix 
mixing them so that, and I tried to, you know, balance them. So if you just play them, you'll hear them together the way I'd like them to be. But people can choose one or the other, and they can change the levels or whatever, or mess with one or the other to get different new, you know, to create their own sounds, their new sounds if they want for whatever they're, you know, using them for. It's it's pretty remarkable the and the user's part. But yeah, um, it's definitely an idea that I've had kicking around in my brain that I just haven't had a, a chance yet to go out and, and do a lot of recording with was was the combination of air mics and contact mics because I, I feel that way too I feel sometimes that the contact mics are a little too direct and a little not natural enough and it just needs a little air to it yeah yeah yes exactly that's exactly right I agree with you and, and what do you use to attach the contact mics well, that's a good question. That's a problem because the stuff that I used to use was this kind of beeswax stuff. Arnie, unfortunately, doesn't make it anymore, and, and I can't get a hold of it. I, I have just a little bit, so I'm, you know, use it just so infrequently, but I love it. I mean, it's just, it just sticks on, and it, it different amounts change the color of the sound. It makes the sound very transparent. I have not tried, and I, I understand that that blue stickum that the people use now, yeah, blue tack, yeah. I've used that, and I've had success with it, but I know other people who don't like it as much. Tim Preble likes to use double-sided tape, a uh, sound designer in New Zealand. Yeah, so do I. Yeah, I've used double-sided tape, too. I like that. That's a sec- my second choice. If there's any way that I can find out how to make this, I've had friends try, thought it was a combination of, of beeswax and turpentine that was heated up to a certain temperature, and that's not working. I think they used to use it on uh, for surgical equipment, but that, that stuff is just magic. I mean, it's the wonderful kind of stickum that has, you know, as I said, the, allows the sound to come through, but it also... This sounds like a tone bender's homework assignment. For any listener out there who knows what the sticky stuff is for Anne, let us know if you know. Boy, if you could, that would be awesome. Yeah, it looks like um, kind of like a hard, malleable beeswax or or harder beeswax or something. I used to get like little tiny amounts of it, and it just lasts forever. You just use the tiniest bit, you warm it up in your fingers, and then just stick it on the on the microphone, and it's terrific. You talk about equipment and, you know, what kind of mics. And, I mean, it, it is important. I mean, that they're, you use good microphones. I mean, that they're, you know, that they really pick up the sound. But I, I think sometimes I've heard people record with really cheesy stuff that's been brilliant recordings just because of where they placed them. Charles Deenan once told me a story of they were doing some car recordings for EA and they had about five different recordists come out and very expensive equipment, lots of microphones placed all over the place, you know, to to record this. And one of their interns came out with um, an H4N and... um, he got the best sound. Charles said that he got the best sound of the whole gang. Wow. And that's because of where he'd put the mics. That really matters. It, it just, you know, to use your ears and use your imagination and really be open, be flexible. Well, listen, Anne, you have been absolutely wonderful. It's been very great to have you on here. I just, I just love the stories. I really do. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. If you want to get a hold of Anne, you can reach her at Sound Mountain. I think what we should say that although you've done lots of huge movies like the Star Wars and the Lord of the Rings, you are more than happy to work on smaller projects so anyone can reach out to you, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't want 
anybody to think that they can't reach out to me. You know, I, I won't work for free and I, you know, I do need to get paid decently, but I adjust my budgets to the project. And if I like a project and I like the people, I'm really happy to work with their budgets. And I try to, you know, to be amenable. And I, I like working on projects that, that mean something that are, that are good. And I, I really am delighted to help people. And I'm delighted to help people that are starting, that are creative, that are interested. I, just, it's wonderful. I've been very fortunate. I've had some amazing guys that have interned with me over the years, and they've gone way past where, you know, I have now. I have one, uh, Chris Boys was one of my interns, and he's got uh, how many, oh, wow. you know, Oscars. He was one of my, he was my apprentice. He was the first person I ever, you know, he went out recording with me or in the early days. Or um, Mike Coleman, whose Soundworks collection was my intern, who's just now I think of him as my mentor sometimes in terms of, you know, getting any kind of publicity out or whatever. He's just wonderful. I mean, he's just, he's just, uh, what an eye he has. I'm just, he was delightful to work with. Another one was uh, Ethan Vanderen, was, um, who's gotten Oscars for several of the Lord of the Rings um, movies, was was my intern back when. You know, it was just great. I mean, these, these guys are just... But, you know, but I'm getting back into hoo land, and, and I don't mean to do that. I mean, I I really love working with people from all different parts of the world. I love seeing what people are doing and, and interacting. I prefer talking via Skype than emailing too much just because I feel like then we, I get to know what people want and who they are and they get to get comfortable and we can just have a really good, helpful exchange. And, you know, sometimes I just, you know, do something for very, very cheap. I mean, you know, somebody needs some whatever and I can zip it off to them. I'm delighted. So step one is to have a good project and step two is call Anne because she's the best. Thank you again, Anne. That was really, it was, it was wonderful. We loved it. Thanks for everyone who listens and participates in the show. Uh, you can follow the show at The Tone Benders and go to ToneBenders.net to leave a comment. Also check us out at Facebook.com slash ToneBendersPodcast. See you guys next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to ToneBenders. Find us online at ToneBenders.net where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at The ToneBenders or email us at DC, Timothy, or Renee at turnbenders.net.